0: The Apostle Paul writes in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 16 In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Here in this one singular verse, along with verse 16, we find that we have a lot that is arrayed against us. Uh, Rulers, authorities, uh, powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil. This is an unseen world that's out there, not in heaven where we seek to go one day, but in the area that the Apostle Paul simply calls the heavens. This area above our atmosphere, but yet not the heavenly throne of God himself. Just these heavenly places where these supernatural beings exist, some in alliance with God, the angels, like the angel Gabriel, the archangel, Or we find there's this world of fallen angels that had the choice to be obedient, responsive to God. But yet, as Peter and Jude both indicate, they gave up this realm of being responsible to God. They did not want to follow his authority and they were cast down. And one of them appears to be this one called Satan, who's identified in verse 16, that was actually cast down to the earth. We find in John 8, verse 44, as we looked last week, that the devil was a liar from the beginning. And John, in his epistle, talks about Satan's work from the beginning. Uh, Satan is not a co-equal with God. Uh, He had a start. He had free will, but he gave it up. But God allowed him to come to this earth. And we'll talk more about temptation today and its challenge and the role of Satan with it because Satan is alive and well among us, though we do not see him. Uh, we simply have to understand by faith, because Jesus says he's real. Every other writer uh, speaks to his reality, and we have to come to terms with it. Uh, we're looking in these lessons, uh, at these themes, uh, seeing an unseen world, God and Satan. We looked at uh, last week, uh, Satan, temptation. Today, uh, we'll explore on the 12th of November, uh, angels and demons. Uh, how are we to understand these spiritual forces? And How do they help us, at least as far as angels, and what are demons, and are they at work today? Is there such a thing as demon possession? If there's not, how do we understand their role? Then we'll look at miracles and supernatural occurrences, uh, how we're to understand them if someone says they have one, or what are they in Scripture? And then finally, we'll look at the war that is already uh, won. But this morning, we're going to look at Satan and temptation. Um, We don't know what Satan looks like. I am quite sure that he is not the Halloween Satan uh, that we see uh, represented in a four-year-old running down the street with butterfingers in his hand. Uh, I think I remember having some little plastic pitchfork uh, that was part of some costume. I don't know if my mom gave that to me or not, but whatever. I I was in possession of it as a kid. And we see a lot of comical or humorous representations of Satan. Um, And that's probably a general cultural attempt at trying to minimize what is a very horrifying reality, to think about someone who's out to get us. And as I searched on Google of different images of Satan, I thought, well, this was probably one. If he was to be identified visually, this is probably what he would look like. But yet, Satan is far too cunning to identify himself visually. It would make it too easy if he came into the office place looking like this. You'd call 911 or you'd usher him out quite quickly. Our administration would be all over someone like this should they step onto our campus. So Satan will never appear as horrifying as he works. Uh, he will not be seen at all, but he will work within people. I remember, Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. As Peter was try- uh, trying to dissuade him from going to the cross. So Satan could work within someone. Uh, He will work within you most often and within me by prompting us to go a direction, as we'll talk about this morning, in a way that uh, God does not want. So we're going to see this morning uh, the answer to the evil one. He doesn't want his strategy exposed, because Satan definitely does have a strategy. So we want to see what it is, and then we want to see how to answer it. We're going to look at two primary themes this morning. Um, First of all, recognizing Satan, recognizing what is happening when we're tempted. The second theme we'll look at this morning is resisting Satan. Uh, Many times we go too quickly to the resisting part, but I think if we could see what is really going on behind temptation, that will give us a leg up on temptation. So recognize what is happening when tempted. We're gonna look at the big picture of temptation and then we're gonna do a close-up. Those are terms from the photography world. If someone's gonna take a a big picture, they're gonna take what's called a panoramic shot. And you can just scan over the entire landscape and you'll get a panoramic view of what you're seeing. Maybe you're hiking in the Rockies and you see people that post a panoramic view. Then others a close-up like on a beautiful flower. So we're going to do this same with temptation. Recognize what is happening when being tempted. First of all, we began this theme of understanding that there is a war between God and Satan. Look back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Understand that what is going on in your life when you are tempted is much bigger than just you. There is a grand struggle, a cosmic battle, if you will, over you. And the decisions that you and I make. And this is one of many places that highlights that. So understand you're part of something very big. That is going on in your world. And the world above this world. The heavens above. Uh, Here John writes as he receives a vision from God. Verse 7 he says. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon And his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent, serpent, called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God, day and night has been hurled down. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, (coughs) excuse me, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil is has gone down to you. Verse 17, Then the dragon was enraged against the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring and those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Here we find. It speaks to a great conflict at one point in time. But it's conflict of war, a struggle between God and Satan, invokes the idea of a serpent, which we see going all the way back to Genesis 3. Jay spoke about that extensively. Uh, We see this conflict, God and Satan, or the evil one, the tempter as he's called. But it's always war. That first verse, Ephesians chapter 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers of this dark age. And he goes on to identify Satan himself. And this is consistent within, with, uh, throughout Scripture. If we just had one verse, that might be figurative or something like that. But it's always described as war or battle or struggle. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Abstain against fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Uh, going back even to Ephesians 6, we're told to take on the full armor of God to try to extinguish the arrows of the evil one. So understand, when you face a coworker worker that you're having a great difficult time with, a great and difficult time, and they know how to push your buttons, and they will bring out language, and they will bring out feelings and emotions uh, that sometimes will want to be retaliatory, other times will uh, want to be... Uh, Something vindictive, which basically is retaliatory, or something like that. And when you're feeling, that what I just said, or what I'm feeling about this person is awful, understand you're part of a war. It's not just you and your little struggle in the office place and your little address or mine. It is a war over what you're doing, your love, your devotion, your attention, that's gone on for the ages, that went all the way back to the Garden of Eden, And it's just happening in your life at this point in time. So there is a war that we're engaged in. That's part of the big picture. Since the beginning of time. Uh, There's a battle over your devotion. You might say, well, what's the war about? Just as we struggle with what's going on in Israel and Gaza today, it's a lot of struggle over land and who belongs there and who has rights to live where they want to live and things like that. Well, the war with us is over our devotion to God. I want to think about these three scenes that we've seen before. These are the three big showdowns of Scripture. First, again going back to what Jay's taught us, Genesis 3. One writer said about 15 minutes into the life of Adam and Eve, Satan appears. And he tempts God's first creation. Adam and the one he took from Adam's side, Eve. Goes right for him. And he goes right for their devotion. Satan says, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of this tree? A war over God's truthfulness is right there in the first showdown of Scripture. The second major one, Job. God and Satan come right up to each other. And God asks Satan, What are you doing? And he says, walking to and fro. Throughout the earth. But then God tells Job, I'm sorry, God tells Satan, in fact, he asks him a question Have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him that's basically faithful and godly. But yet, Satan comes back, hey, and essentially saying in paraphrase here, He's not serving you because he loves you, he's serving you because of what he gets out of it. You take everything from him. He's going to deny you. He's going to say he doesn't want anything to do with you. God allows him to take everything from Job's life. A great test over who's true about why we serve God. And Job ends up being faithful and true, though he's put through this great gauntlet. But it's a test over this allegiance and devotion when God takes this great gamble to give humanity free will. He didn't give it to the animals but he gave it to us believing that we would choose him over evil and what a great gamble that's been over time but it's also been god's prize value I want you to think about a time that you've received if you're a grandparent a card from a grandchild Say, i love you grandma Or maybe a loved one in your life at some point in time. You you don't forget those messages where someone tells you they love you. Or maybe in marriage someone says, I'll be with you and for the rest of my life. Forsaking all others. There are not any more precious things than that. Where someone says, I love you, I'll be devoted to you, I'll give myself to you, and I'll forsake all others. That's why marriage is so special. Biblical marriage. Because it's a sign of devotion. Try to understand our God. That is what he is looking for. He has the power to just take anything he wants. But you cannot take love and let love still be love. You can't take love by gunpoint. But you think about the greatest commandment. When that lawyer comes to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Thou shalt love. The Lord your God will all of your heart, all of your soul, and your mind. And then the second is, Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Those are things that cannot be forced, but yet that's what God wants. And this great struggle of Satan is over that love that belongs to God that he so covets and desires and give it to Satan himself. Because Satan doesn't really think you're in this for love for God. He thinks you're in this for other reasons, that you have this good, protected life, and, and you're on easy street because of God. And that's what he did with Joe. He said, well, you've got this hedge around him. He's comfortable. He's got a five-car garage. He's got all these good things. He's got all the kids and all this. But you take those from him, he'll curse you to your face, Satan said. And God allowed that to be challenged. You think of the battle uh, in Matthew chapter 4 over Jesus himself and his humanity. Three times Satan goes directly at Jesus to try to get him to do something his father doesn't want him to do. Hey, take all these kingdoms of the earth, make this all yours, turn, turn these stones into bread, defy God, defy him, defy him. And what does Jesus answer to every one of them? It is written, it is written, it is written, you shall not do this. So think if, if Jesus went after, or if Satan went after Jesus, he's gone after Job, he went after Adam and Eve, do you think he's not interested in you? He is. If he'll go for the top, he'll go for all of us. Because that's a way to embarrass God. Or to show God this whole business of free will should never have been given to us. Because look what we've done with it. So that's the big picture. That's the panoramic view. That's what's going on when you're being tempted. Understand you're part of a big struggle. But yet your temptation on a Thursday night is very important still. It's critical because both God and Satan are watching over what you're going to do. Understand also what is going on as we take the close-up now. We looked at the big picture of a war between God and Satan. A battle over your devotion. Here's the close-up. What exactly are you being tempted to do? Look over at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Again, we have to understand what temptation is. Sometimes we take it lightly. Uh, there's a singing group in the 70s called The Temptations. Wonderful songs, but we're, we're very casual with the word temptation. Uh, I think there's a TV show out, I don't want to watch it, haven't seen it, called Temptation Island. Uh, boy, how comfortable are we uh, with this problem of temptation? Uh, We use it freely, uh, I'm tempted to eat that, and, and and that's all right, I guess. But when it comes to sin, and what God wants, and what Satan wants, temptation is deadly serious business over the struggle. So again, the more we understand it, the better. Here's what fundamentally temptation is. The opposite of what God wants is made attractive. Let me just say this again. The essence of temptation is this. The opposite of what God wants is made really attractive. You think back to the Garden of Eden and that's exactly what Satan did with the fruit from the tree of life. God's holding something back. He knows of the day that you'll eat of it Satan says. You'll become like him and all of a sudden A fruit that probably was not that attractive at all becomes extremely attractive because Satan makes it appear to Adam and Eve like something is being held back from them. And as Jay so well navigated, Eve is deceived by that. Adam just bumbles along and says, I'll do it. But it's a struggle over what God says you don't want to touch. And Satan says, oh yeah, you do. The opposite being made attractive. Look what Paul says as he talks to new Christians about their life and the decisions they make. We'll look at Ephesians chapter four. We'll start with verse twenty-two and we'll go into uh, or go down to the end of the chapter. But notice here that he calls calls upon them to live a new life. He calls upon them not to do one thing, but to do the opposite. Starting with verse 22, he says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25 now, notice the contrast of choices. Verse 25, Paul writes, Therefore, each of you must put off Falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Let's just pause here for a moment. He takes up one, one thread of sin, falsehood. He says, You must put it off and instead put, uh, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Let's talk about the, the attractiveness of lying. When you don't feel like you got a good story to tell, and man, I love being around good storytellers because I can't tell a story. I can give you basic facts of what happened to me yesterday, but I can't put it in story form. But I love storytelling. I love when people tell me the story. Hey, I went over here yesterday, and I can't do that very well. But a lot of liars are basically people that want to have a good story about all their things of the past, things they've done, things they bought. Uh, here they've done this, done that. They want a good story. There's some liars that just want a good story that they know what, no one's going to fact-check. Others just like to get out of their responsibility with a lie. Officer, I, I didn't do that, or, or they'll tell the teacher, I didn't do this, and they just, they enjoy the pleasure of getting out of a jam. And the better they can lie, they kind of enjoy that, because it absolves them of responsibility. But here Paul says, put off falsehood. He says, instead, speak truthfully with one another. The opposite of lies is speaking the truth. But there's an attractiveness to lying. Lying gets you out of a jam. You might, have, you might get to pay less for something if you lie about it. Or you lie about a return that you took back to the store and say it was damaged. Really, you dropped it. Um, there, there's a, an attraction to doing the opposite. Paul says, you don't do that. You speak truthfully. God is seeking for us to be truthful people so that other people can trust us, so that we're people of our word. We don't have to say, "I swear, I swear all the time, because people just believe us when we say we're going to do something. But the opposite's always going to be attractive because it gets us out of a jam, or if we're a, a serial liar for a storyteller. We'll just always be telling big fibs because it gets people's attention and we don't think we'd get attention otherwise. And that is true with every sin. Look at as we go on, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So here we have this natural emotion of anger, but here Paul says, deal with it quickly. He says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Uh, We're supposed to solve situations as quickly as possible. Paul writes elsewhere, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. Well, some people don't want peace. There's people that want conflict all the time. Always angry, always upset, always blaming. Amen. They get a lot of money from that. A lot of strong emotion with that. And if someone else is always to blame, it's the government, or it's your spouse, or the neighbor or a politician, or a coworker, or a family member, and they're equal opportunity blamers. Because they get a lot from being angry all the time. It intimidates other people, so they'll invoke their emotions to scare people. And it gets their way, because it's not a normal thing. So Paul says, don't do that. In your anger, do not sin. Don't intimidate. Don't retaliate. But he says instead, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Resolve it quickly or something. We'll get mad at people. We'll get mad about things, but he says, resolve it. Don't be in this constant state of anger against other people. Satan tries to make that anger attractive. Hell, man, that's, you get, you, look at the angry people you work with. Man, they always get their way because they, they throw a fit and they get their way. Even if people just don't want to deal with them, they get their way. Paul says, don't do that. Let's go on to another one. Uh, verse 28. Those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but instead must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Let's talk about the attractiveness of stealing. Now, stealing's not attractive to everyone, but every once in a while you'll see on the news, some celebrity that's got a fair amount of money is stealing all of a sudden from Macy's. Like, what's that all about? There's an excitement of stealing. There's an... E- Excitement of what Gomer Pyle used to call ill-gotten gain, of getting something that doesn't really belong to you, and rather whether it be a smash and grab or stealing from a company because you think they have plenty because you have an illegitimate return or something like that. There's an attractiveness to kind of get away with something, especially if you think you deserve it and all those rich people have their stuff, you've got to have yours too. Or sometimes it's just the fun of taking it. Can you get in and out of the store and no one catch you? And there is no material gain. People just like stealing. Well, there's an attractor that. Satan makes it attractive, though you're really taking from someone, even if it's a corporation. You're taking from people and hurting them. Paul says, don't do that. If you've been stealing, the person must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. God wants us to work. There's a satisfaction that comes from working and taking care of yourself, paying your own bills, uh, taking care of your business. And Paul says, hey, and and whatever extra you might have, make sure you share that with others. That's what God wants, us taking care of ourselves and then being able to help others who physically can't. Satan says, no, 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 don't do that. Why don't you just rip others off? That's real exciting in the moment, especially if you get a whole group together to do it. It is exciting. But it's wrong. So Satan's always trying to get us to do something that's exciting, that he makes attractive, but it's wrong. It's the wrong way to get what you want. Paul says, verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up, according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Unwholesome talk. There's a lot of people that like the F-bomb. They love four-letter words. They pepper their speech with it. They pepper their stories with it. Uh, There's others that like to traffic in gossip. There's others that like to traffic in slander. They always hey, did you hear about so and so? Hey, come here, come here, come here. You got that coworker you work with? They always like to take you aside and close the door, and they got something really good. And I guarantee you, when they do, it's hard not to go along with them. Hey, you know what I heard about so and so? People will do that with me every once in a while. It's hard. To, no, let's, just, let's talk about the football game. Everyone wants to hear something good about someone doing something bad. That's our dark side that Satan's trying to tap into. Our desire to get the juicy gossip or hear what someone did, whether it's true or not. But Paul says here, don't traffic in that. Don't be a dealer in unwholesome talk, but instead only what is helpful for building others up that might benefit those who listen. Instead, be a, what God wants is us to be, hey, did you hear what someone did? Hey, did you hear so-and-so got a raise? Did you hear so-and-so uh, just had their child come back that they haven't seen in a long time and see them now? That's not as exciting as someone at work doing something bad that someone learned about. That's what God wants. He wants us to be someone that's always encouraging and telling the truth about people and lifting them up. But Satan says, no, it's far more exciting to have the goods on somebody. Or be the first one to know about someone getting fired. And the first person to know about someone's going to get reprimanded. That's what Satan wants. He wants you traveling in the dark side of everything that's good that God wants you to do. So the opposite's always going to be made attractive. The opposite's always going to be made attractive. And these other verses kind of go along with that to support it. And fourth, as far as recognizing what is happening when we're tempted, desire and hate collide. It's not that everybody's bad. But here's what Satan is doing. First of all, the book of James, chapter 1. James is tapping into our natural desires. But he's twisting them. We have natural sexual desires. God says, I want you to express that in marriage. Satan says, no, 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 no. There's a lot of other ways you could do that. And he wants to make those other ways be real attractive. Notice how James describes this in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot tempt anyone by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Verse 14. But each of you is tempted when you are dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. What Satan is doing is he's prompting you with something attractive and sinful. And he wants you to go into that. There's a Seas candy close to where I live. It's in Burlingame Plaza. Do you know the chocolate for Seas candy is also made in our area? You ever smell it? If you live in Milbrae, Airwans, or you're in Burlingame, you smell Guitar's chocolate. They make that, and you just smell that? You combine that with having a Seas candy close by. What are the colors of Seas candy? Black and white, see, we all know. You know the color of the packaging. We know the color of the packaging. Are there stores, big or small? They on the smaller side. Can you put together your own box there? Yeah, we, we know all about Cs candy. Has anyone ever gone into C's candy and come out with nothing? No, because they offer you a, a sample. <laughs> yeah um, We're drawn to those things. We're drawn to sweets, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're constantly going in every day and walking out with a three-pound box for yourself, there's a problem. But something natural, that is for something sweet that's attractive, if it's overdone, becomes a problem. And every addiction, whether it be chemical, alcohol, sexual, addiction to lying, deceit, to ste- addiction to anxiety. There's some people that like being anxious because it gives them something to be real wrapped up about all the time. It's an over kill because Satan's tapped into a natural desire to have something good and he wants to overdo it or make that natural desire be fulfilled in a wrong way and then you have to hate yourself for it if you go through a one pound you don't have to go through a three pound box of candy from seeds. just try eating a one pound box, just try eating Oreos I've done this before, that's why I'm citing these things Oreos, they you go, I can go through a whole sleeve in one night, easily, and more. But still, that's not good. Look what Paul says about the struggle with sin. Look at Romans 7. Here we are, and remember what Jay taught us about in uh, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve had sinned, all of a sudden they felt Shame. The guilt of what they've done is wrong. And look what the Apostle Paul says about this guilt of wrong. And this is our battle as it was his. Speaking about sin, he says in Romans 7 verse 15, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do I do not do. But instead what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, is no longer I myself who do it, but a sin living in me. I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. Verse 21, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging what? War, there it is. War against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. This is the struggle of temptation. Bad people aren't tempted. The Hitlers of the world aren't tempted. They just do it. From a seared conscience, they don't care anymore. They've disconnected their conscience. But when you feel bad about something you've done that's wrong, that's because your conscience is still alive and acting, and what God gave you is tipping you off that you just did something that God doesn't want. Or you came real close or something like that. Again, being tempted is not wrong. It's getting into it. Being tempted is natural. And if you give into it, though, and you feel this sense of guilt and shame, I shouldn't have said that. Or I shouldn't have gone there. Or I wish I hadn't unloaded all these emotions. Or whatever it is. You feel bad later, that's the you have this desire to do wrong at times. But then we hate ourselves when we do it that is our struggle so part of our challenge simply to recognize what's going on a big picture God and Satan warring a battle or a devotion the small picture is the opposites being made attractive and there's going to always be the struggle where we do things we don't want to do or we know we shouldn't do and that's just a reality of temptation well, what's the response now last few moments I want to talk about well, what do we do about this Resist temptation in effective ways. How are we going to do this? Take on such an overwhelming challenge against us. Number one, determine to resist. Look what James says in chapter 4. Right after he described in verse, or chapter 1 about we're drawn away by our own desires and we're tempted. Satan prompts us and then our desires kick in and we follow. James also says this. James says, chapter 4, verse 8, verse 7 beginning, then we'll look at verse 8. James says, verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you, he'll run. Okay, there we have an answer here to this problem. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay, you might say, okay, I know this. <laughs> Mark Twain said one time, I can resist everything but temptation. Uh, this is easier said than done, I think, when we first look at it. Resisting temptation. When well, we first recognize what's going on, uh, one of us probably at some point in time has gone to a car dealership. You've had to go through the dreaded process of trying to buy a new car, and I hope there's no one that's a car salesman or related to someone, but... You realize that to get this car, you're going to have to go through the salespeople. You wish you could just buy it and get it, but you've got to go through the sales. And you, you think about what you're going to have to go through. And maybe if you bought a car previous in your life, you thought,, okay, I remember what happened last time. I thought the salesman was my friend, and I allowed him to be real friendly with him, and he got me coffee, and he made sure I was always comfortable, and he seemed like he's really helping me with this car, and I remember that. And all of a sudden he wanted to to see how much my car payment could be a month. How much could I afford a month? And you start remembering the process of how you were kind of brought in to maybe spending more for a car or getting a car that maybe you were buying too quickly. But you remember the salespeople made you real, they got you coffee, they had donuts right there. uh, They sat you down, they didn't tell you the price, they just asked you what you could afford as a car payment. Then all of a sudden the sales manager was brought in and all of a sudden that was you remember how you maybe ended up paying more for a car than you should have because they kinda took you in the way they take people in. But are you gonna let that happen the second time? Remember years ago going to buy a car and I'd already bought one, I go, okay, I gotta be ready. I gotta know what I'm gonna spend. I gotta be willing to walk away. Salespeople are not my friends. They only see me as an avenue of money and the sales manager for sure is not my friend. He's there to get even more money, and the finance guy's there to get even more money trying to sell me undercoating. And well, what's the point of all that? I think if we know what's coming with temptation, we can see it far away, whether it be a seized candy store or a car dealership, we'll know at times to keep driving. Sometimes the only way to resist seized candy is to keep driving, <laughs> Don't go in the store if you're trying to avoid eating it. The smell, you're going to be taken over. You've got to keep moving from it. Sometimes you're going to have to avoid people. Sometimes you're going to have to decide, I'm not going to go in the showroom. Because it's going to be hard to say no to this new car I want, but I quite haven't figured out how to afford it yet. They will figure out how to afford it. So maybe you just need to keep driving, not go in the showroom. And part of temptation is determining to resist, which might involve avoiding people, places, electronic devices, making sin very difficult to commit. Trying to avoid buying a car you don't need or don't really want, go to the dealership and hang out in the lobby. Don't ask to come talk to someone, don't ask for a brochure. You're trying to avoid caloric candy, don't go to the candy store. Make sin hard to commit. But sometimes there are going to be people in your life that are going to want to bring you in to their sin. Their gossip, their slander, their envy, talking bad about people, sexual lust. You're going to have to make it hard by keeping yourself from those things. A few years ago, I recognized that electronic devices are going to be a big challenge in my culture, my life. And my school offered me a school computer to do all my school work on. I also learned that, hey, the school tracks everything you do online. And I thought, okay, I'm going to try to get an edge on Satan, but the only computer I'm going to have is my school computer, and I'm going to use that to my edge because I don't want my school knowing anything, so that's going to keep me from doing a lot of things on my computer. I might otherwise, because I took away the privacy element. I decided so I'm just going to do all my computer stuff on my school computer, accountability to God through them, my professional stuff, I'm going to do my sermon prep, everything, searching on the internet, knowing that someone else is looking. I want to make sin hard to commit, because sin loves privacy. Sin wants you doing things with no one doing, uh, knowing about it. So keep things accountable. On my phone, I know Elisa will like to look at my phone from time to time, just to look at it. I want to feel comfortable with every photo she might find. So I determined that's going to kept, be kept clean just as like my computer is, and I'm not going to have a bunch of secret devices around. It helps a lot. It's not perfect. It doesn't mean there's been mom, not been any moments of weakness, but you've got to do things like that at times to resist by making sin hard to commit. Keeping yourself removed from it as close, or as much as you can. And that might, again, be people that just want to drag you into their drama. That goes down a sinful path. So determine to resist. Say, I do not want to go this direction. I'm going to go the opposite direction and keep driving away from people, things, and places that are problems. Again, it's hard. But you're going to have to do that. It makes sin hard to commit. Two, move closer to God. This makes it easier. James 4, verse 8. Right after James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, he says, come near to God. And he will come near to you. When we take on temptation, don't just say, hey, I'm not going to do this and just shut down. Instead, determine to resist, but come close to God. Well, how do you do that? Through prayer, number one. I can't remember a sin I've ever committed when I've been praying. But I know a lot of times I've been involved in sin, I don't want to pray. And you know, I've never committed sin while praying, but there's times I haven't wanted to pray if I'm involved in something wrong, thinking something wrong. But constantly staying in contact with God through prayer, uh, through His Word, uh, these assemblies, engaging in these songs, always will keep you close to God where sin is not going to be that attractive as it would be otherwise. Because Satan can't get in, he hates when you come to church, he can't get through these doors. Resist Satan, but move closer to God. Get involved in serving others. If you feel like your life is boring, don't go some sinful path. Spend some time with Loretta if you want to know what serving others is all about. Helping other people. Satan can't get into the lives of someone that's so busy helping other people, they don't have time to go to the dark side of town, figuratively or literally. Because they're satisfied, they're happy, because they're really making a difference in the life of someone else. The people that helped Lindsay the other day move, and there's more than one here. It's hard to sin when you know you're helping someone in life that desperately needs it. And doing difficult things. Sin just can't get in. But if your life is full of those things, helping, serving, blessing, encouraging, Satan keeps finding locked doors in your life. He keeps trying to get in in the old ways but they're locked because you kept them locked by good things. So move closer to God. And finally as we close this morning look for the way of escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 our last verse. Paul writes to the Corinthians who struggled mightily with sin. He says in verse 13 No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to all of us. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Always look for the escape. Paul says God's going to provide it. Sometimes it's hitting the gas pedal of your car and driving past the place you want to spend time with that's not good for you. Sometimes it's closing the door or saying goodbye to someone who keeps wanting draw you into their sinful stuff say I'm sorry I don't have time you walk away, you drive away you walk away, sometimes you have to scroll away when something comes up you keep scrolling or sometimes you've got to run remember in Genesis 39 when Potiphar's wife was tempting Joseph grabbed his garment, hey come into my room what do you do, do you sit down in the gate with her hey what's all this this private stuff in your room all about, let's talk do you need to talk to me about something, what do you do He just ran. He left his garment in her hand. He just got out of there. Sometimes you're going to have to run from things. Because the temptation is so fierce. You might be thinking. As I've thought even preparing this lesson. I've fallen many times though. Paul after he described his battle in Romans 7. He says verse 24. What a wretched man I am. And haven't we felt wretched at times for things we've seen, things we've done, things we've thought, things we let come out? He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Romans 7, 24. Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our challenge is to resist, move closer to God, look for ways of escape but there will be times when we fail. John says, if a person says they have not sinned, they make God out to be a liar. But we will win this great struggle ultimately, not because of perfection or getting to a point where, hey, I'm not sinning anymore. But we trust in the grace of God through His Son, Jesus. So at times when we fail to do the things we've talked about today, the blood of Jesus comes in as we confess those sins. And cleanses us from the sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And God makes us continually pure through the blood of His Son, Jesus. And those that understand this deep cleansing are those that constantly fight temptation. They don't want to crucify the Son of God all over again. And they want to continue to work to get out of the sinning business. And not make a career out of it. And sin becomes more and more minimal in their life than dominating because they trust in Jesus Christ to forgive them. And how could they do this against the Son of God who loves them so much? We're going to sing a song in just a moment. Victory in Jesus. Come on up, Austin. We're going to sing this together. Paul said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. As you leave here today, I don't want you to think about all the times you've stumbled or fallen. God knows that. He knows my stumblings. He knows my failings. That we're here today with the great physician, through his blood, has cleansed us from our sin and continues to cleanse us. Whether the next sin is 20 minutes after getting home, or two days from now, or two weeks from now, most likely it's gonna be sooner than later. We are cleansed from our sin. We have victory through Jesus Christ. And that's what a Christian is someone who finds victory through Jesus, who's come to the cross, acknowledges their need for cleansing, and they stay with God. They confess the sins they know about, they receive cleansing, and they get right back up again, even if they've stumbled multiple times.